You're listening to the Table Church Podcast. The Table is a community in Orville, California that aims to follow Jesus by doing what he did. Love God, love our neighbors, and serve those in need. Find us at thetablechurch.net, Instagram, or Facebook. And now for the message. We're just going to kind of take it easy and talk about something like prayer and what we do while we wait. This is a book, y'all, if you are interested in going further. Um, today's message is not from the book at all, at least as far as I know. Um, it's just one of my favorite prayers in Scripture, and we're just looking at uh, this person. Her name is Hannah. But before we get there, uh, we are going to let you know that you can send questions at any time. Please do. I want this to be a dialogue and not a monologue. And so... Um, Yeah, send questions. I'll have this out in case any come through. I'll do my best to see them. I feel like I'm already getting some. Are you guys texting me already? (laughs) Great. Um, That's going to be at the bottom of each screen. It's also in your bulletin. Uh, The reception, phone reception is not great in here. So sometimes if I don't answer your question, it's because I didn't get it till after I walked out of here. That's nobody's fault except this cave of a building that we have. I got to give you a little bit of background before we get into the story. And when I say God who, I mean, I really want to. You actually don't need to know it, but I'm happy to tell you anyways, because this is one of my favorite things. Thank you. Killer beats on the intro video. You know what? I always pick music that's way too cool for me, but I love doing it. Um, Here's Deuteronomy 14. If you don't know what tithing used to be like in the Old Testament, Listen to how wonderful this sounds. After summer, you can't read it, but it's up there just to keep me honest. Um, After summer, after the harvest, the families would be asked to go up to wherever the temple of God was. It ends up in Jerusalem, but in the story we're at, it's going to be in a city called Shiloh. And what they would need to do is take a tenth of all their food and animals that they could eat and their whole families, and you go up to the temple of God and you have a giant feast. You would give your animals over, and and if you couldn't, if you lived too far away to travel with that many animals, you could sell everything and take a tenth of your money and go up and buy all the stuff you need. But what would happen is you would give the priest the animals, and sometimes we think of offerings, we think of burnt offerings, and that's where they would burn the entire animal, but most offerings weren't that. What they would do was they would cook the animal. The priests were professional barbecuers, and they would take the front, a front quarter of an animal, that was their portion, and they would give you back the rest of it with delicious sauce on it. I don't know if that's true, actually, but wouldn't it be great if they were... They would give you back three quarters of the animal, and you would eat it, and you had three days to eat it, and whatever wasn't eaten after three days, you would have to have burnt up. And so you've got to feast. That was your tithe. It was one time a year, you brought 10% of your stuff or your money, and you threw a giant feast. The only requirements were you had to invite the priests every year because they didn't have a land portion. They couldn't grow their own food, so you were required to help them. And every three years, you had to invite the poor, the widows, and the orphans and throw a giant feast with them. Doesn't that sound like an incredible way? I wanted to start a thing called the Tithe Church, but that sounded like I was really interested in money. But if you just had 50 families that were like, it's our Sunday to throw the feast, we're bringing our 10%, and we're just going to have a barbecue, like that was every Sunday. I was like, also, uh, I'll just be real with you because it's in God's word. Um... Uh, You can convert the money, then you must use the money for anything you want, cattle, sheep, wine, beer, whatever else. They were 
partying. This was not a solemn occasion. And so this is the backdrop for Hannah's story. They are going up to this kind of feast. Deuteronomy 14, this is the kind of tithe. I feel like pastors don't talk talk about this because it sounds way more fun than just like, put an envelope in the basket. It's like, (laughs) let's go. Here's uh, Hannah's story. It really starts off with her husband, and you think it's going to be about her husband, but it quickly changes. She, Hannah, sorry it's pixelated, is married. This is from the 1200s. It's an illustrated Bible from Paris. She's married to Elkanah, and it gives his lineage, and it doesn't really matter because it shifts to Hannah real quick. And he loves Hannah so much, but she can't have children. At least that's the thought. It might be him for, I don't know, you know what I mean? But they always blamed it on the women. And so she was a marriage out of love. But there were a lot of really easy ways to get a divorce in this time. And one of them was if you could not produce any children, let alone a son, to inherit the property, you can get a divorce. But sometimes when a man loved a woman, he wouldn't divorce her. He would just get a second wife. This is Peninnah. And so Peninnah knows that she's not the beloved wife, but she can have children. And so out of her own hurts and trauma of not being the beloved, she mercilessly attacks Hannah. And every year they would go up to do their Deuteronomy 14 tithe. And Elkanah would submit all his food to the priests and then he'd get it all back deliciously barbecued and he would give out all the portions to his children in Peninnah. But he would give Hannah a double portion because it says that he loved her. And that's the background. There's something going on, y'all. I'm praying it's a parade. They're like, it rained. So this is just a little bit of the scripture. I won't read the whole thing. But whenever they went to the Lord's house, Peninnah would make fun of Hannah. She would cry. Look at, look at her husband. He, he, he's, he, he's caring, but he's clueless. I don't know if you all know any husbands like that. But look at his questions, right? Why are you crying, her husband said. Why won't you eat? Why are you so sad? Aren't I worth more to you than 10 sons? There really is a caringness about her, but no, you're not worth more than 10 sons in this culture that is based on honor and shame and being able to produce offspring. No, you're not, Elkanah. Calm down. Be quiet. Leave me alone. But he's caring. All these questions kind of point to this caring, but clueless. He's not mediating this whole issue between his spouses. And so what happens is... Hannah is heartbroken, she's crying, she's not eating, and she decides that she's going to go to the temple and pray. And she pours her heart out. And what happens is there's a priest there named Eli, and we don't know much about Eli the priest, but he sees her praying, and he thinks that she's drunk, which I'm going to say later, but I need to say now. It's It's a scathing review of the religious leaders of this time that the priest would think someone praying is drunk, But there was a lot of partying going on. But he couldn't tell the difference between drunk babbling and praying. So uh, they're up, they're eating. And she comes in and she prays. Hannah is very upset, 10. She can't stop crying. She prays. She made this promise, Lord of heavenly forces. This is like the commanding general Lord in front of all the angels ready to take names. Just look at your servant's pain and remember me. Don't forget your servant Give her a boy, and then I'll give the Lord, I'll give him to the Lord for his entire life, and no razor will touch his head. She makes a vow to God. 
And she kept praying before the Lord, and Eli watched her mouth, and now Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was silent, and he thought she was drunk. So let's move into our good news for today, where sermon series is after amen. So I want to take a look at what does Hannah do after her prayer, and maybe that can inform what we can and should do. He says, how long will you act like a drunk, sober up, put away your wine, he says. No, sir, I'm just praying. I'm a sad woman. Don't think your servant is some good-for-nothing woman. This whole time I've been praying out of my great worry and trouble. And he responds, then go in peace, and may the God of Israel give you what you asked of him. And she says, please think well of me, your servant. And then Hannah went on her way, and she ate some food, and she wasn't sad any longer. They got up early the next morning, and they worshiped the Lord. Then they went back home. Elkanah and Hannah um, made out, and then the Lord remembered her. And so in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, which means I asked the Lord for him. You know how we do? Head, heart, hands, three points from this story, something for us to know, something for us to feel, something for us to do. And I think the thing that the Lord wants us to know is that there is immense hope in realizing, not is, in realizing God hears us. There is immense hope in realizing God hears us, and this is what Hannah teaches us. Hannah's sadness lifts, not in the answering of her prayer, but in the knowing that God heard her. And I think that can bring us immense hope as well. What did she say? Please think well of me. She ate her food, and she wasn't sad any longer. She ends up having a son. Samuel means heard, El means God, Samuel means heard by God. There is immense hope in knowing that God hears us. But the haters will try and halt your hope. There will be people who try to squash the thing you're praying for, the hope you have and what you're praying for. Why? I'm sure there's a million reasons. If you know some, send them to me. Here's the ones I came up with. Sometimes people are just mean, like Penina, right? They just are mean. Things are hard for them, and they're going to take it out on others. They, they act in that mindset. It was hard for me. It should be hard for you, too. Um, other people, I'm like, is that me? What did I do? <laughs> other people just want to smear their fear. They don't like to be hopeful because they don't like to be disappointed, and they are trying to uh, smear that on you. They've had their expectations dashed before, and so these haters will try to halt your hope by smearing their fear. I think they think they're being loving. I think they're trying to protect you. They think, right? They don't want your expectations to get too high, your hopes to get too high, and so they try to shut it down so that uh, you don't experience what they've experienced. And I think in a weird way, sometimes they're trying to protect God. That if we don't have too high of expectations of God, we can't have our expectations dashed and we won't lose faith. This is why sometimes haters try to hate on our hopes and prayers. I think Eli represents this in this story. The sad state of the religious leaders, like I said, who couldn't distinguish between someone who was praying and someone who was drunk. The priesthood is not in a great state. But it reminds me that isn't it often sometimes the most religious who shoot down the hopeful because they're trying to protect God or they're trying to protect you, they think, and it, but it ultimately just comes across cynicism and negativity. 
I had a colleague, this is just a picture, but I had a colleague who told a story that when she was very young, she was praying, maybe seven, eight, nine years old, she was praying, and she said, I clearly heard God say that I should be a pastor someday. And in her excitement, she ran out to tell her family what God had just spoken to her, and they said, oh, you're going to be a pastor's wife someday? That's so lovely. What a great call. And she was like, no, I think it was pastor. And they were like, pastor's wife sounds really great. You should, you should really aspire to that. And I heard her tell the story as a, as a middle-aged woman who finally lived into the call that she originally felt, but felt like those religious people had shaped her prayer in such a way that she did what they said, not because that's what God wanted, but because these religious people had become cynical and dashed her hopes and imported all kinds of negative theology onto what she felt like God was saying to her. Sometimes it's the religious who dash our hopes the most. But what Hannah teaches us is that we can't let others hinder our hope, even if it's the priest at Shiloh standing there watching you pray. Can't let these haters halt your hope. She defends herself against Eli so well that Eli blesses her. And in that blessing, her sadness dissipates. Even without a promise of yes from God, she's able to trust the wisdom of God. And that's hope enough for her. I got a question about that story. I guess I didn't finish well. Did she become a pastor? Yeah, she did. She was a pastor's wife, but she realized that God really did call her to something else. And so she was a co-pastor for a time. And it was really lovely to see her do that. But sad that these religious people shaped her hope in a negative way that wasn't from God. But again, Hannah, even without a, a positive affirmation from God that the prayer was going to be answered, knowing that God heard her was enough. She was able to trust the God of the universe with her prayer. This is Tony Cartledge, Dr. Tony Cartledge, professor of Old Testament. I was reading his commentary on this passage, and he had this great section. He said, indeed, Hannah had no positive assurance that it would be answered, but she had a newly found hope, and she believed that God had heard her plea. Hannah had placed her future squarely in God's hand, hands, and her heart was at peace. There is immense hope just in knowing that God hears us, and we learn that from Hannah. What does God want us to experience or feel? What does God want us to experience here inside of us? There is an encouragement to participate in the present moments. I hope you can go along with me on this journey, but I really was convicted by this in Hannah. So you can participate in the present moments after amen, after you say your prayer. Hannah went on her way, she ate some food, she wasn't sad any longer, she got up early the next morning and worshipped and went back with her family to Ramah. She rejoins the party after her prayer. She joins in worship after her prayer. Sometimes I think, we think, the holiest thing we can do is just to stay in that temple or to stay in that church or to stay in our prayer closet and just pray, 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 pray while we're distant not present with the people around us. Hannah shows us what it really means to trust God, what it really means to believe that God is real and that God is close and that God is caring and that God hears from us. 
She says her prayer. She beats Eli at an argument. Take that, Eli. And she rejoins the celebration. Sometimes I think the holiest place she could have stayed, right, to pray and pray and pray is the temple. But she teaches that sometimes the holiest place to be is, is at the party with the people present to what's going on. She pours out her heart and then goes back to the celebration. I remember when I was in school, when I was up in Seattle, I got to lead uh, these classes of freshmen. There were 12, it was essentially small groups, but they were to help them to process in a spiritual way all the stuff that was going on. And one young woman was having a hard time being away from her family, and she was really processing that. And she talked about how one time she got into a car accident, and it was minor. It wasn't major. She didn't have to have major surgery or anything, but she was pretty banged up. And she remembers her mom coming and, and not being able to sit with her in the hospital room. Her mom, she said, spent more time in the, in the hospital chapel than she did present with her. And she said, I just, I just wanted my mom to be present. She could have prayed next to me, but she went off and prayed. And it was just so hard. She just felt abandoned in a hard time. And her mom was doing a good thing, but her mom wasn't able to be present in the middle of the situation. Hannah shows us that we can participate in the present moment. That in trusting God and in having the hope that we get knowing that God hears us, we can be present to the people around us. We don't have to just stay in our prayer closet. God is not asking us of that. In fact, in my small group on Tuesday, we read the passage from Jesus. He says, when you pray, don't pour out a flood of empty words as the Gentiles do. They think that by saying many words, they'll be heard. Don't be like them because your father knows what you need before you ask. And so, in exact contradiction to what I said yesterday, last week, which is that we should pray persistently, sometimes we can pray too much. <laughs> At least when it comes to not being present. At least when it comes to the people around us and the situations that are going on. You can pray and pray. I think you should pray and you should learn to try to pray always is what scripture tells us. But there's also a way in which we can trust God enough to be present to the people around us, especially to their pain, especially to the situation. But even in the celebrations, right, we're encouraged to rejoice with those who are rejoicing and mourn with those who are mourning. And Hannah shows us this, that we don't need to mope around to make God see us. We don't need to heap up lots and lots and lots of words like the Gentiles do because we think by doing so, God will see us. In fact, when when Jesus tells us to do our spiritual practices, he says, brush your teeth, wash your hair, wash your face. Like, don't mope around. Like, God knows what you need. God will give it to you. We don't need to do that. And Hannah's a great picture of that. She prayed. She had the confidence. She went back to the party. We could be present and participate joyfully in the world around us, even in deep sadness and prayer. What does God want us to do with this story? What does God want us to practically do? We're on our last point. Feel free to send any questions you have. By last point, I mean point 3A. We see her continuing to practice the spiritual practices, and I cannot emphasize this enough, except I'm only going to talk about it for one minute. We call these in our tradition the means of grace. And grace for us is defined as the presence and the power 
of God. We believe that reading our scriptures and coming to worship and praying and fasting and giving to the poor, these are all the spiritual practices that God has ordained, that God has told us that God will meet us in. And so we continue to do these even while we are waiting, and we see Hannah do that too. She prayed, she understood that God heard her, her sadness dissipated, she rejoined the party, and she worshiped with her family at Shiloh. I, I encourage you to continue in your spiritual practices. You might not get an answer the first time or the second time or the millionth time, but I promise you there's no better place to wait. Just to tell you that she did that. They got up early the next morning and worshiped the Lord. But what I think we can really take from Hannah that we should do is that we need to create the conditions for the prayer to prosper. While you're waiting, after amen, you need to create the conditions for the prayer to prosper. But be careful. This is where bad theology creeps in. It is true what I said. We can and should do that. But this has the potential for some troubling things to arise. Most importantly, I think, I would never want you to blame or congratulate yourself for that prayer to be answered or not answered. What do I mean? Just because God might have said no... That might be an answer to your prayer. It's not your fault that you didn't create the conditions, right? We believe that God's will will be done regardless of what we do. And so I would never want anyone, and that happens. That happens all the time in churches across the land, that you didn't have enough faith, right? And it gets real dark, right, when we talk about things like mental illness. It's like, you weren't healed because you didn't have enough faith or you must have had some sin in your life. That's not what we do here. I don't want you to blame yourself. So when I say create the conditions for the prayer to prosper, uh, if you end up trying to blame yourself or congratulate yourself, my prayer was answered because I'm the best. I create such good conditions. Seeds grow. No, we, we don't do that. That'll get you in trouble. Secondly, I don't want you to assume that a positive outcome is God's will or God's answer to your prayer. Are you tracking with me? Let me use my own story for, for an example. But uh, I, anyways, we have to get into some stuff. I was asked to apply to, to adjunct profess some sociology classes at Chico State. Um, and I was very excited to do that. And I went through the interview process. I created the conditions, right? And I was praying about this. And, and then in the midst of praying about it, I said, is this God what really wants me to do? It's part-time. I'm not getting a different job, y'all. I just might do this, but for sociology, uh, my undergrad. Um, but as I was praying, my first prayer was like, well, if they offer me the job, then it must be God's will. And I want to assume now that's not true, right? Just because there's a positive thing that happened, and I mean positive in that like it might be what I want, or I might have received the opportunity. I'm now praying, like, is it your will, even if they say yes, right? Just because they said yes doesn't mean it's God's yes. And so I would be concerned that if we are creating the conditions for the prayer to prosper, that we would end up with a theology that just says, well, if the opportunity arises or if something happens, then it must be God's door opening. And that, again, is not scriptural or theological. These, 
beloved people might not be expressing the will of God. And so no longer is my prayer, hey, if this door opens, I'll walk through it. Now the prayer is like, is this really from you? And let me sit with this. By the way, they offered me the job on Friday. And I'm like, I wish you would have said no. That would have been so much easier <laughs> in this prayer journey. So come springtime, I may or may not be professing theology, sociology. If you want to take it, it's a trillion dollars. So... <laughs> But they have loans. <laughs> Great interest rates. Some of the worst interest rates you can get. We shouldn't assume just because we got what we worked for and wanted that it is God's will for them. You, you feel good? Now let's move on with the point. Oh, no. It's like, likewise, not getting it doesn't mean we failed. It's not our fault, right? It, we didn't lack faith. God isn't punishing us. It's not how this works. It le I mean, it may be sometimes, but I'm never in a place to say it is this time or it is all the time, right? We don't want to, it's just, not, it's just not the understanding I have of God as revealed to us in Jesus Christ. That being said, Hannah created the conditions for the prayer to prosper. Are you tracking with me? I'm not reading it. <laughs> Hannah created the conditions for the prayer to prosper. She could have waited for a Mary situation and just had, you know, a baby just miraculously appear in her womb, but she created the conditions for the prayer to prosper. I'm going to get off of this, but I need you to, you, she did, right? She, she took the steps to make sure that her prayer was answered. It reminds me of David. Again, it's hard to read, but I just put it up there to keep me honest to the scriptures. When David has to face Goliath, He's very confident because God had already created in him the conditions for success. David says, don't let anyone discourage you because of that large monster. I'll go fight him. And they have this great line. I love this line. You're just a boy and he has been a warrior since he was a boy, right? He's like, I don't know, it's just a great play on words. If that was, someone was preaching that, I'd be like, good job, that's great. And David says, your servant kept his father's sheep. If there was a lion or a bear that ever came and carried off the flock, I would go after it. I would strike it and rescue the animal from its mouth. If it turned on me, I would grab its jaw. I would strike it. I would kill it. Your servant has fought lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be just like one of them because he has insulted the army of the living God. And the Lord David added, who rescued me from the power of both lions and bears will rescue me from the power of this Philistine. David is talking about how the conditions have already been created in him for success. He's not waiting for a miracle. He's saying that he's, he's here. He got here uh, by God doing stuff in him already. The conditions have already been created for things to prosper for him. And there's an encouragement in that. Again, we can have some bad theology, but there's some encouragement in that. So like uh, one of my hopes, one of my bucket lists, one of my prayers is that uh, I want to, if my kids decide to have kids, I'd love to see my grandkids. Now, I can pray that God miraculously doesn't let the Taco Bell affect me or the ice cream, but or I could just try to live a healthier lifestyle. Now, I have total faith that God can miraculously do the things. I believe that's real, but I'm also going to create the conditions for success. Does this make sense? You guys get this. Again, with jobs, you could pray that God drops a job in your lap, and sometimes that happens, but I would also make sure you have an up-to-date resume. You could pray that reconciliation happens with the person that you want, just that God would just 
zap their heart into submission and contriteness, contrition, contriteness. Is a, it would have been so much better if it would have rhymed the first time. Or you can just schedule coffee and try to ask them for forgiveness for the parts of the situation. That you, right? You can create the conditions for your prayer to prosper. Even with our faith, we can pray that God gives us an immense amount of faith or you can practice the spiritual practices that also we know God meets us in to increase our faith. And you can pray for the illnesses to go away. But at the Table Church, we would also recommend that you go to the hospital and take your medications. See trained professionals of the body, of the mind, because we want to create the conditions for the prayer to prosper. We 100% believe that God can miraculously do the thing, but we also know that God works in our actions and in the world around us, right? Creating the conditions for the prayer to prosper isn't a grand gesture of faith to get God to notice you and bless you, and it's not a denial of the miraculous abilities of God. It is a recognition that God most often works in the everyday world around us using the small actions and seeds of faith to accomplish his will and way in the world. Questions? What did you send in? Killer Beats. I'm going to read that again because I just appreciate it. Thanks, brother. I got it for free on YouTube. I've heard the, pray, the phrase, pray with our hands when praying meets action service. Yeah, I think so. There's, that's been in, in powerful for me as well. Uh, I heard that phrase when I was a teenager, to pray with our hands. That's one of the ways we can create the conditions for success. What I ended up doing, though, and I think we can do that too much, is I never developed a praying with our, my heart very well. And that's the journey I've been on for the last decade is, what does it mean to not pray with my hands, to sometimes just trust that God is doing the thing? But praying with your hands is always a great way to figure that out. Uh, other questions? Uh, like, if you see a problem and you could pray about it, but you, you can pray while you're also trying to physically solve the, you know. Um, the example that maybe we both heard it from was like, I can pray for um, wheelchair ramps, you know what I mean? But I can also just like, maybe we pray and organize a wheelchair, wheelchair ramp building party or whatever, or, or get the funding. So that idea of like, we're going to pray with action behind it. But again, my, I went too far and I was like, I'm always praying with my hands. It's like, maybe I need to just, again, sit back and go, is this what you want me to do? Is this how you want me to spend my time? But praying with your hands is good. Someone asked the hardest question about my job interview thing and, and wondering not just if the door's open, I should take it. The question is, what are some biblical next steps in the journey to determine if the door that has been open is the one you should walk through? Yeah, that's a great question. And I don't have an answer for you. Well, <laughs> Romans 12, 1 tells us that we should not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can know God's will. And so what I would say is this is something that comes with maturity, that the more we walk in our faith, the more we will be able to determine God's will. 
But that's not a satisfying answer because uh, it takes a while. The other thing I would suggest is to have a group of Jesus friends that you could submit things to because the more prayers and discernment you have on this, uh, the better. But there are obviously some times where you are allowed to walk through doors and God doesn't have to open the heavens and say, this is what you should or shouldn't do. And I would encourage you to talk about it with those friends of yours who are following Jesus about whether or not that is part of your missional makeup. Is this how God formed you? Is this the gifts that God has given you? And are you employing those well? But I don't know of any lock-solid, for-sure ways of discerning this except by gathering a community and walking in with maturity. I remember one time I was helping this woman who was in her 80s, and she uh, could not see, and I was helping her move. And we were driving in the truck together, and she said, "Uh, I just now have been able to start discerning between my voice and the voice of all my family and teachers and God's voice. And she said, it has taken me a while, but you can get to the place where you can single out the shepherd's voice, right? Jesus says, the sheep know my voice. And so she's like, you can get to a place where you can discern what is God's voice and what is all the other voices going on in your head. And so that is the most sure method is just a mature walking with Jesus. Thank you for the question. Great, let's summarize it and move on. With our head, what does God want us to know from this story? What do we do after amen? Uh, uh, What Hannah wants to convey to us is that there's immense hope in realizing God hears us. And with our heart, after amen, uh, there's an encouragement from Hannah to be present and participate in the ongoing moments around us. You don't have to stay in your prayer closet forever. And with our hands, there um, there is... this idea that you should continue in your spiritual practices and create the conditions for the prayer to prosper. In your spiritual practice this week, based on this, I would love for you to implement one action step for the success. Whatever it is you're praying about, just create a small condition for success. I'm going to let you discern what that is, but I'm giving you some encouragement to do that, even in the face of there being some potentially bad theology. I'm trusting that we understand and we are moving forward by the power of the Spirit. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for Hannah's story, for her boldness, for being the type of woman that you want to use to teach us what to do in situations like this. She has two beautiful prayers, and they are so informing of our faith. They're echoed throughout Scripture. May her example be useful to us, and may you use these words to help us, to figure out how to wait, to listen, to hear, to walk more confidently, and to be more hopeful. And we'll give you praise and thanks in doing so. Father, now as we come to the cup and the bread, we pray that it be spiritual nourishment for that journey, that it would draw us closer to you because you promised to meet us here. And in these elements, we come with expectation and anticipation to be close to you, whatever it is that means for us from you. And we'll give you thanks and we'll give you praise for this. Table Church, will you help me end this prayer by saying the Lord's Prayer? Saying, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.